today's text is from John 18, 38, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23. I've got a little handful here. <laughs> so please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. First verse, um, Pilate said to him, what is truth? The Son of Man, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All, thing, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. Um, all, hopefully all those verses will come together today for you. You're like, well, those are some random verses. Um, they are very random, um, but hopefully not at, by the end of this. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been in a series uh, called uh, The True, Good, and Beautiful. And it's a series on what is classically called the transcendentals. Now, I... I've said this, I think, every single week, but I've been having quite a bit of fun in this series. I've just, and I'm, I'm tired of apologizing for it. I'm thoroughly enjoying this series myself and studying for, about, studying for it and talking about it and all sorts of stuff in and around it. Now, I know some of you, this is all very new and it still feels a bit abstract, even though we're talking about very non-abstract concepts or rather trying to teach that the abstractness that we assign to things like goodness, beauty, not truth, but goodness and beauty for sure, are in fact not abstract at all, but something very concrete. Nevertheless, I know that there are, and there still is a bit of like half-baked uh, dough happening for some of you still, and my hope is that the smell of baking bread is motivating enough to keep you learning and, and, and growing and, do, and, and, and going. So let's keep going today in this series. And what I want to do is I want to kind of weave all those three texts that we read together. Um, I want to review, so we'll do three things, three parts in this sermon this morning. Um, and uh, the first two, I'm going to be reviewing two kind of big concepts that we've been unpacking over the last uh, few weeks. And I want to build some of it out. And then the last thing is like a third thing that's a bit of a new thing, which, um, which is hopefully kind of gets you moving and like, okay, what do I do with this? What do I do with these, these transcendentals? What do I do with this uh, theology on the good, the beautiful, and the true? What do I do with it? So hopefully the third point. So I'll break down today in three points. Cool? All right, so part one, or three parts, I should say, three parts. They're not really points. No points in the sermon at all. Just parts, and hopefully you glean some stuff, some pointers from it. I don't know. But anyway, part one. We'll call it part one the universe and a juice cleanse. 
I've been teaching for the last couple of weeks that for our ancestors, from the time all the way up into enlightenment, so that from the beginning of history all the way up into, or human history, I should say, all the way up into enlightenment, uh, our ancestors used to see the world, the cosmos, as charged with the divine. The Greeks, through Plato and Aristotle, began to think of the cosmos as full of order and beauty, which is where the Greek word cosmos means, right? Cosmos or uh, cosmetics, it's order and beauty, okay? This is where they believe that the, the, whole, the whole, what we would call the universe, is the cosmos, has order and beauty to it. And therefore, everything that we see, like everything that we see, everything that we can know, everything we study, and they did a lot of that, has its reality in forces beyond what we see. So the things that we see, there are things that are beyond that, that transcend what we see, and the reality is in those things, okay? Now, of course, this is a bit reductionistic. We've been talking about this for two weeks, so if you're like new this morning, you're like, that's really reductionistic. I know, we've been talking about it for two weeks. So um, Now, for Plato... Uh, the idea is encapsulated in the analogy of the cave, and we talked about this two weeks ago. The analogy of the cave, which is, if you did philosophy 101 in in university or college, you know this. Um, The analogy of the cave, the analogy goes something like this. People, uh, we all live our whole lives in a cave, and we stare at the interior of the cave, and um, the interior wall, and behind um, the cave is the outside, and outside exists the sun and real objects, and what happens is the sun casts shadows inside the cave, of very real objects outside of the cave. Are you following? People in the cave only know what they see on the wall, shadows. Now, they may live their whole lives and not realize that these shadows are of actual real things. Thus, Plato said the job of philosopher, the role of a philosopher in a society is bringing these viewers out of the shadows, out of the cave, and into the light. They actually, as they emerge from the cave, they begin to see reality as it actually is. Now, if this, from, this language is familiar to you, if you've studied the, old, the New Testament, it's because it is familiar to you because it's in there. The same language is used by John, the Apostle Paul, and the author of Hebrews in speaking of Christ. That Christ is the true light, that it gives light to humanity, and he is what the shadows find their reality in. There are shadows, there were shadows, And Christ is the reality that gives life to these shadows. Those things are real. Shadows were real. There were real temples and real feasts. All those things were very real, but they had their ultimate reality beyond themselves into something greater, which was Christ. Okay. Now, I say this saying that we used to believe this. We used to view the world this way. We, at least in the West, don't see the world as being part of a cosmos anymore. We don't even use the word cosmos. We don't call it the cosmos. We call it the universe. Now, what is universe? Well, here's the definition. I've been teasing a definition for two weeks, but here it is. Here's just the basic definition of universe. The totality of known, that, that for, of known is very important, the totality of known or supposed objects and the phenomena throughout space. And the second definition is the whole world, especially with reference to humanity. So notice the universe. The reference point is us, humanity, and it's what we know what we can observe, tag, name, explain, that's the universe. However, the cosmos is something different. The cosmos indicates design and pattern and order and beauty, and therefore, 
if there's order and beauty, there is someone who put the order and beauty into it. Therefore, the, the cosmos has moral and teleological obligation for us to live in alignment with. So the, the, the idea was you would live in alignment with the order of the cosmos, the order of beauty, the order of goodness, the pattern, its design. So you couldn't just study the hard sciences. You had to study what was good what was true and what was beautiful because all of them were teleological. They had their meaning in something greater. So for our ancestors, they, they believed that you would live under the authority of God. Whatever, even if they didn't exactly know what that God was, you, you lived under the, authority of God, the, under the authority of God. However, the universe is what we know from our human point of reference. So life, and this is life today, becomes self-referential. And therefore... We live with no real telos, no real meaning, no real purpose, not rooted in anything transcendent or beyond our own authority. We don't really believe. That stuff is in the realm of belief and religion. That is not in the realm of what we can know. And the result of this loss of meaning is that we could end up in a kind of nihilism. That's one thing. But the other thing is philosopher Charles Taylor says that we live with a malaise, so that's actually how he would define our modern age, our secular age, he calls it, is that secular humans live in a kind of malaise, things that you can feel in the music of Father John Misty or the 1975 or films and TV shows, all that come out from A24. Basically, any movie or film that, or program that comes out of A24, this is the malaise that we're talking about, like Euphoria or the opening scenes of Everything Always, like that sort of thing. Then there's this book. It's called The Madness of Crowds. And in this book um, is authored by Douglas Murray. And um, Douglas Murray is an author and politician who describes himself as a gay atheist. He says this in his recent book. He says, all of our grand narratives, or what, what, what we don't like to use anymore, meta-narratives. It's not, we're not allowed to use meta-narratives in a postmodern age. But what he says, all of our grand narratives have collapsed in Western society. Religion went first, he says, with the Enlightenment. And then the political ideologies went next in the postmodern era, which is defined by its suspicion towards all meta narratives. You're not allowed to have a meta narrative no more in a postmodern age because meta narratives are all about power. So you're not allowed to do that anymore. And he says, this has led down, this has led to the breakdown of our modern project. Our modern secular project is at a stand. No one knows it yet. I mean, we kind of know, we feel it, but it's at a standstill. He says this quote, people in wealthy Western democracies today could not simply remain the first people in recorded history to have absolutely no explanation for what we are doing here and no story to give life purpose. Whatever else they lacked, the grand narratives of the past at least gave us meaning. The question of what exactly we are meant to do now, other than get rich where we can and have whatever fun is on offer, was going to have to be answered by something. Now, this something is what the culture wars are all about, by the way. This is what all the politics and all the, all the, um, the uh, identity politics, all of the stuff that we're fighting over is what will give our culture and society meaning because there is no meaning. This is why, we have, this is why people can't agree on anything anymore because there is no ground of meaning. What he and many other social commentators write is that in this vacuum of meaning, it won't do just to say there is no meaning. That will not do. 
Very few of us get to absolute nihilism. Even the nihilist character, Russ Cole, in True Detective Season 1, in the end, sees that there's something more transcendent in the cosmos than the nihilism that framed his life before. Nihilism, you, you, it's really hard to live a life as a nihilist and have any sort of reason why to get out of bed in the morning. And my point is this. We can't live very long with a loss of meaning. Humans are meaning-making creatures. We have to find alternatives. We find new and different ways to find meaning. Andrew Murray, in his book, believes that the way that what has filled the void today is our outrage. Outrage has filled the void of meaning, and we think we have meaning, and we just fight with each other. But my favorite treatment of, of this subject of a loss of meaning in our secular age is this wonderful book. It's probably my favorite book, uh, my favorite read so far this year, by Tara Isabella Burton. Tara, sorry, Tara I Isabella Burton. Um, it's called Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. I was actually stuck in an airport with, with Jess G. We were like going to Vancouver for a ministry thing, and we were stuck in an airport for like, what, eight hours? I forget, I was just stuck there. And I didn't, I didn't even mind that being stuck in an airport because I was reading this book and I just couldn't put it down. I was glad we were stuck in an airport so I can read this book. It's so good. Put it on your summer reading list. She says that in the world of spiritual, not religious, which is pretty much everyone in San Francisco, <laughs> spiritual, not religious, I'm spiritual, not religious, or the rise of the nuns, not the nuns, like nuns, like nuns, but like nuns, I mean, have no religion, none. Do you have a religion? None. I have none. It's a thing, nuns, rise of the nuns, right? Not the, anyway. She says, no one has actually ditched religion. We have just new religions. They're secular religions. She names a few, and they're so good the way she names them. She names a wellness culture as a religion, social justice as a religion, sexuality and the sexual utopia as a religion, and she has a few other ones. She says that all of these follow the exact same pattern as any bona fide religion. And she holds a doctorate in theology at Oxford, by the way. And she says, religions offer this. Religions offer four things. Every religion offers these four things. Meaning, purpose, community, and ritual. Every religion offers meaning. Why the world is the way it is. And the location of evil in it. Purpose. This allows adherents to shape their life in accordance with that meaning. It gives this community purpose. Community, it offers an alternative, alternate sources of community and new forms of chosen family. And ritual, the solemnized formal occasions by which through activity and partici participation, adherents achieve collective effervescence, reaffirming their role in the community and their sense of purpose in the grand narrative that their religion provides. Okay, this is, every religion has these four things. Now, let me, let me prove it to you by just doing wellness culture. Wellness culture is my favorite one. Here's why. I've tried to bring this up in our church for years, and I, every single time, it felt like everyone wanted to kill me. Like, are you saying I shouldn't take care of myself? I'm like, no, 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 no. Die to yourself. Like, no, no, no. I can't die to myself. I have to take care. Self-care. It's like really important. Boundaries are really important. Like that sort of, and I couldn't, it's like I couldn't come up against that, like, that's just so accept, accepted, even in church. But she comes up against it, and it's brilliant. I'm like, finally, someone has better language than me going, die to yourself. Here's what she says. <laughs> she said, and she has a whole chapter on this, so I'm just going to quote just two little paragraphs. It says, we can see, for example, that the language of energies and toxins 
promoted by the contemporary wellness culture, which locates evil and sickness within this pharmaceutical industrial complex and a society bent on destroying our natural authentic selves, is, while not dealing with deities as such, nevertheless a foundational theodicy, like what's wrong with the world? It explains why there is evil and suffering in the world, or at least in our bodies, and it gives us a series of rituals, exercise, skincare, jade eggs, to help us supposedly counteract them. It transforms the seeming randomness of cell decay, mutation, and death into an illusory, controllable system. Okay, so basically, I, I know you know what she's saying because everyone here is smart. But you're saying what wellness culture does is it does the same exact thing as religion. What's wrong with the world? Toxins. People could be toxic, and toxins, McDonald's could be toxic. What do you do? Self-care, boundaries, spa treatments, goop.com, whatever. That's, that's what you do. You go down Valencia, every single little boutique, you will find crystals and jade things and like things, the energies and all of this stuff, all over, everywhere. Everywhere you go, you'll see it everywhere. Why? This is, we, we believe in this stuff. Like if you grab a crystal and show it to the front counter, like does this work? They're going to go, no, it's, no, it doesn't really work. They're not going to say that. Oh, yeah, it totally works. It works. It removes this toxin and that toxin and this thing and that thing. It gives purpose. It gives us a reason to wake up in the morning. I go, anyway, she goes on to say this. The energy you tap into a yoga class and the energy you get from drinking a moon juice concoction and the energy you get from positive thinking are at once unifying spiritual constructs. The world is an inherently meaningful place with energy running through it. That's what it believes. Engages your, your personal material connectedness. The world revolves around you. The existence of higher power and the dewiness of your skin or balance of your bank account or circumference of your waist are inextricably intertwined. It's the best of both worlds. Here's why. It combines moral relativism with the comforting veneer of metaphysical universalism, an inherent meaningful world where you can still ethically do whatever you want. Wellness begins and ends with the self. This is literally the religion of San Francisco, one of them. Read the social justice one, that's, that. that's the religion too. It, it, it charges the world with what's wrong with the world. Power is what's wrong with the world. Toxins are what's, whatever it is, that's what's wrong with the world. How do you fix it? You take up this cause, that's how you fix it. You take this drink and do this class, and that's how you fix it. In the end, whether you're talking about social justice, wellness culture, sexuality, or politics, it always comes down to capitalism. In the West, especially in America, we buy our meaning. You can shop the story. You can purchase and support at businesses that support your causes. And you can buy a juice cleanse to rid yourselves and people even feel your souls from toxins. Now, all of this brings us to Pontius Pilate. John 18. Jesus is standing trial to be crucified. He's in front of Pontius Pilate. And there's this interchange, exchange of, of words. And it's very familiar to us. We just came out of the Lent season into Good Friday, and so this might be familiar to some of you. I'll just read the, the text. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, who was standing trial, and asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? 
That is your own idea. Is, is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and the chief priest handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate said, what is truth? Okay, what, what, what's happening here? What is Pilate doing? Standing in front of Jesus, Jesus is giving him an exchange, and Pilate's like, at the end, Pilate's like, what is, what is, what is truth even? What does it even mean? That be, what does that even mean? What Pilate is doing is that he's avoiding the complexity. He's avoiding the complexity of this, this moment that he's in. That there's someone who comes to him that seems very innocent, but these people want him dead. What do I do? Could I even find the truth here? No, truth is relative. I can't find the truth. Who really knows the truth? I don't know the truth. I don't know if this person's this. I don't know what you're saying is true. I don't know truth. Is there even a truth out there? He's avoiding the complexity. He doesn't want to try and figure out if Jesus is telling the truth or if he is the truth. It's way easier to say, and it's, it's way easier to, especially to say in a position of authority, it's way easier to say, what is truth? Do we even know? Who can know? We can't know. We can't know the truth. So you know what? Let's live and let live. Let's find meaning wherever we can find meaning with the brief time we have flying around on this rock that we're all on because what is truth? What is goodness and what is beauty? Part two. We'll call this the ground of all reality. My point in all of this is that there is an objective and coherent reality that runs across the universe or I would say the cosmos. The Christian religion, or the Christian faith, I don't believe religion's a bad word. The Christian religion teaches us that the reality is Christ. It was the poet D.H. Lawrence that said, water is H2O, hydrogen two parts, oxygen one, but there is also a third thing that makes it water, and nobody knows what that is. Our text in Colossians says that that mysterious third thing that is Christ. Christ is the cosmic glue, the one who holds all things together. Christ is the center of moral logic. Christ is the center of hard logic. Christ is the center of transcendent logic. All of that you will find in Christ. In Plato's cave analogy, it's Christ who is the light. When the apostle John opens his mystic account of Jesus, he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And from the reality that is Christ comes all the transcendentals, that which is good and beautiful and true. All of these realities are deeply embedded in the essence of what it means to be human, meaning humans can never get enough truth. There will never be a time when you will say, I know enough. I don't want to know anymore. I don't want to know anymore anything about anything. I'm done. I'm satiated. I don't want to know any more truth. Never. We are, are, are built into who we are and the essence of being human. We desire and hunger for all the truth. We can never get enough goodness. 
It's not that we are content to have goodness only like in one place of our lives. Like work is good. At home it's a little bit evil, but that's fine because work is good. <laughs> Nobody's satisfied with that. You want good everywhere. You don't just want good in your neighborhood. You want good in all neighborhoods. Not just in your state, but all states. Not just in your country, but all countries. We want good everywhere. We can't ever get enough beauty. We don't want some beauty and some ugliness. We want all beauty. So truth, goodness, and beauty are parts of one comprehensive reality that can be grasped by the human intellect and to which all our desires are pointed. That's what we've been talking about. And the philosophical argument for the transcendentals is that this is what we were made for. Humans desire these things, and not just desire some of it, all of it. The longing and desire for beauty and goodness and truth is at the very essence of our human nature. And so, a little bit of review here. This is what we said. These are quick definitions of uh, true, good, and beauty. Truth, we said, is that which corresponds to reality. Okay? This was last week. We built this out more, so I'm just going to move on. You can't have truth, own the truth. You can only participate and submit to the truth because truth is something transcendent. Goodness. Goodness is that which aligns to its nature and its teleology. A good blender blends, a good heater warms, a good car drives. Something good aligns to its nature and in its, its intended purpose. It's teleos. Beauty. Beauty is that which awakens. My whole hope was to do beauty every single week, but I just don't have enough time today, so we'll get to it next week. Beauty is that which awakens. As the poet John O'Donohue says, beauty does not linger, it only visits. And when it visits, it calls us. It calls us. The word beauty comes from the word call. So does vocation, by the way. It calls us. All of these transcendentals exist. They're real. We know they're real. We know they're real. In our humanity, we know they're real. We appeal to them in our work, in our relationships, in our attempts to find meaning and purpose. We appeal to these things, sometimes in broken ways, sometimes in misaligned ways, but all of us appeal to these things on why we believe what we believe or we live the way we live. Colossians 1 says that they all exist because Christ exists. It says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, what this means is that Christ is at work currently, right now, reconciling everything to himself. Let me unpack this for, for a second. At the center of all reality is Christ. So a transcendental is something that points beyond itself to a reality that matches up with the thing. So goodness is only good because it reflects the goodness of God, the true reality. Truth is only truth because it reflects, it is emanating from, the, from God. And beauty is only beauty because it comes from the beautiful God. Okay, so at the center, at the very center, this is what the transcendental theologies teach. At the very center of all reality is Christ, and all true, meaningful, and desirous things have their reality in Christ, meaning they exist because he exists. Therefore, goodness is not just arbitrary, but real. They align to the goodness of Christ. They emanate from God. 
Beauty, too, is not simply just about taste, but it's subjective and real, and it comes from a beautiful God at the center of all that there is. And truth is not just relative, but coherent and cohesive and finds its truth in the light of Christ. Another way of saying this is this. All truth is God's truth, all goodness is God's goodness, and all beauty is God's beauty. Okay, what about lies and evil and seduction and ugliness? What about those things? They exist, but they exist, as we said last week, like dark exists. The absence of the good, beautiful, and true is what sin is. Sin has no ontological being. It's just the absence of something. It's the absence of the good, beautiful, and true. So what is Jesus doing about this? What is Jesus doing about the darkness, about the sin, about the brokenness, about the misalignment, about the disorderedness, as Augustine would say? What is Jesus doing about that? this? He's reconciling it all to himself. This is what Colossians says. How does this work? Well, right now, my, my, my car... My car is in the shop, and I love my car. I just love my car, okay? Just don't judge me. I've been taking public transportation all week, and I'll say that I love my car, okay? (laughs) I'm still a Californian, like deep down. I love my car. The engine light came on about a week ago, so I took it in, and every single day they find something new that's broken. Like, we fixed this thing with this thing. We fixed this thing with this thing. I keep getting texts from my guy, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, and then that's another, a lot of money, and that's a lot, another, every single day it's there, it's a lot more money, and every single day it's there, they're finding new things, and you're thinking, are you getting like swindled in this place? I have no idea. <laughs> to be continued, okay, so, but what I hope they're doing, every single time they find something new, you can say they're trying to reconcile that thing, right? They were trying to bring it into harmony with itself to make it good again, to make the engine good again, they're trying to, they're reconciling it to itself, to the way it was not to be too on the nose, designed, right? Now, our text says that Christ is up to a similar kind of work, and obviously, through his people, this is our vocation, our resurrection vocation, if Christ is the ground of all that is, when things are not as they should be, the only thing that can truly fix it and remedy it would be bring it back into alignment with Christ, who is the source and the ground of all being. You can also say, bring it into the light. You can also say, reconcile it to Jesus. If Jesus is the source of all reality and therefore the source of all that is true, good, and beautiful, then we don't arbitrarily go around and try to place laws and regulations that confirm with our religion or our doctrine. That's thinking way too small. Way too small. It's aligning everything to the beauty, goodness, and truth of Jesus. So things are not Christian and non-Christian. Again, that's way too narrow. All things find their reality in Christ. So Stephen Turley writes in a really good book, if you're looking for like a primer on the transcendentals called Awaking Wonder, it's a really good book. He says, Christian tradition insists that all that is true, beautiful, and good finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. By encountering truth, the human intellect is awakened to the infinite wisdom of God revealed in Christ By encountering goodness, the human volition is directed to act in accordance with the divine purposefulness of creation and our own created nature renewed in Christ. And by encountering beauty, the human soul is awakened to the inexhaustible wellspring of divine love revealed in Christ. In short, the Christian vision of truth, goodness, and beauty is an invitation, a divine call to awaken the fullness of our humanity as the entire cosmos 
is incorporated into the transformative life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Now you're like, but how do I do that? Again, I'm not really good at telling you how. I'm really good at telling you this is how the world is, this is, this is reality, and then like you have lives figured out, that sort of thing. But I'll try right now. Okay, my third point, because people keep on, what do I do? Okay, I will try, part three, we'll call this use your imagination. <laughs> and let's pray, no. Um, <laughs> by the way, if you don't have a king, to, you gotta stoke your imagination. Whatever you need to do to stoke your, you know, in Christ, whatever you need to do to stoke your imagination is so vital. This is why nature is so important. It grounds us in, we're from the earth, by the way. Did you know that? God created us from the earth. And so when we're in nature, it's like we're, we're grounded into like our nature, like who we are, what, how God made us and his beauty. Like whatever, whatever it takes to, to like grow your imagination, there is no way that you and I can bring about the renewal that God wants to bring about in the city without a renewed imagination of what is possible. Okay, so this is really important. So use your imagination. First Corinthians 3. Okay, this is, we'll end right here. First Corinthians, First Corinthians 3 is a chapter about church leaders. And I probably lost the entire room. Everybody's bored, right? No, why? Why are we talking about this? Well, it's not just about church leaders. Um, a little background. The people in Corinth had their favorite celebrity pastor. Not relatable. And their loyalty and partiality of their favorite teacher caused people to argue, and it caused jealousy in the, in the church. Again, not relatable. This is way before the internet, okay? Everyone was fighting, like, no, this person's the best. No, this person's the best. No, this person said that. This person said this. I follow this person. I follow that person. Well, I'm not of that tribe. I'm of this tribe. This is what was happening. Paul is telling them that you are all thinking way too small about this. You don't just have one teacher. There are a lot of teachers of the gospel, this is what Paul is saying, that plant and water and that God uses to help you grow. And then Paul, what Paul does is he gets big. He gets like really, really big. He says this, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. That is the teachers like Paulus, Paul. All things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas, now, what is he saying? All things are yours, meaning you can learn from other teachers. There are things that other teachers of the good, the true, and the beautiful will bring out to help your life with God. And when you find that thing, it's yours. It's a gift from God to you to help you grow in Christ. But Paul gets way bigger than that. All things are yours, whether Paul, Paul, Cephas, or the world. Okay, wait. We can learn things from outside the church and the Bible that can help us in our life with God? We can do that? Yes, absolutely. When you see it, claim it, but he's not done. All things are yours, whether Paul, Paul, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or present, or future, all are yours. And you are of Christ, who's reconciling the entire world to himself, and Christ is of God. Here's the point. There's this thing that many of us believe it's pervasive in, the, in fundamentalism. It creeps into almost every church. It's this idea that there's truth and then there's God's truth. God's truth is the biblical kind of truth. It's the kind that can only be found in uh, the church or in Christian things, like uh, Christian music or Christian movies 
or Christian art, or Christian therapy, or Christian t-shirts, or Christian candy, or whatever. We've come up with everything, right? I've seen it all. Now, the problem is, is there any other kind of truth that is not God's truth? No. If it's true, it's from God. If it's truly true, then it aligns to something of God because all truth emanates from God. If it's good, it's from God because all goodness emanates from God. If it's beautiful, it's beautiful because it emanates from a beautiful God. This is what the transcendentals mean. This is why philosophically it's so important for you to understand this. This is what the New Testament writers fully, truly believe. This is what Paul believed when he was writing Colossians 1. Everything is from Christ and everything is held together by Christ. And the things that are out of order, Christ is reconciling to himself. Why? Because all fundamental reality is in Christ. This is what Paul is saying. So what that means for you, what that means for me. If it's true, then it's from God. Science, art, politics, history, psychology, biology, all truth is God's truth. So what does that mean? Go and find it. Align yourself to it and find out how the truth that you see everywhere finds its truest reality in Christ. I think this is our vocation as Christians, as followers of the way of Jesus. It is our job to go out into the world to find the things that align with Christ and, f- and show how they actually f- make their fulfillment in Christ. The things that are, don't align with Christ in the church, because there's, there's things that don't align with Christ in the church and outside of the church, to name them and then to be a part of the reconciliation that Christ is doing in the world. Now, this will be difficult. This is not easy to do. This is not easy to do. This is really difficult work. You have to think a lot. You have to think a lot about what you do and how you do it. This also means that goodness can't be confined to these walls. You are not just good at church, but your whole life has to be aligned to the good, meaning align your new AI startup to the good. You're like, no, AI can't do good. If it can learn, it can learn the good. Uh, seriously, I've been having really good conversations about this with a few people. It Align things to the good. If you're like, no, I can't bring my beliefs into it, what do you think you're here for? Honestly, what do you think you're here for? Do you think you're here to do like, your church life, and then you go out in the world and you do the world life? Like, or the integration of all things, because if it's true, it's of God. If it's good, it's of God. If it's beautiful, it's of God. And how do you align yourself to that and then align the entire world to that? Because this is literally what Christ is doing now. And this is our vocation. This is like what we're called to do. But this also means, it means you are arbiters of beauty. You are arbiters of beauty. And this is where imagination comes in. We have to imagine a more beautiful world that Jesus is reconciling to himself. We have to imagine it. We have to imagine the world, the, that neighborhood in our city, that, 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 that thing in our society, the, the thing happening in your marriage that you think, there's no way we can get over this. The thing happening in your interpersonal relationships or your job. It's, and some of us think that, we, we think we have crises of faith, but actually it's a crisis of imagination. We can't imagine a beautiful outcome, and so we get stuck. But this is the job, this is the, the, the redeemed imagination, this is, our, this is our vocation, to imagine the true 
the good and the beautiful, and to be arbiters of that, to bring it into the world. And so why, why did, I'm going to just show, show my cards here. I don't, I don't know if that's a saying that we still say, but here, 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 here's why we're doing this series. I want our church community to be a part of creating the beautiful in our city, imagining a beautiful, like not just like what we think is beautiful, but what is at the base of all reality, beautiful. Because if it's beautiful, it has to be good and true. Remember that from last week? And if it's good, it has to be true and beautiful. And if it's truly true, it's both good and beautiful. To go out into the world and align the world this way, not in a way that tries to Christianize everything, that tries to slap a Bible verse at the bottom of something. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being people who think and know how to align with nuance and creativity things to the reality of Christ. This is, this is hard to do. And I will say, this is hard to do. And this will take conversation. This will take conversation in your community groups. This is why we're doing videos in our, um, for community group material. We want you to see it, imagine it, hear testimony, people sharing their story, them wrestling with it, them thinking about it. How, how do we do this in this city? This is, this is, I think this is why we're here. And this is what I hope that, that happens. Now, I think the way we do this is primarily through beauty. Primarily through beauty. I think the world is sick and tired of what, what the church thinks is true. I think the world is sick and tired of what the church thinks is good. And I think the open door is beauty. But we have to do more of that next week. Would you stand with me? as we pray. Lord, I just, I, I feel called to, to, to commission right now. So would you extend your hands out just open like this to God? Um, Lord, I commission this congregation. I feel bad because I knew the first service, but them too, Lord. Um, commission this congregation uh, to be people of truth and goodness and beauty in the world. And this wouldn't be like an extra biblical thing, like some add-on, but this is literally Christ. Literally Christ. This is making Christ known in the world. This is realigning everything to Christ who holds all things together and in his, his body reconciling all things to himself, things seen and unseen. And I pray that we would be about that work. That's our vocation, our call, what you've placed us here to do. And I pray we'd say yes to this vocation and wrestle through all the implications of it and it would unlock new ideas, new ventures, new commissionings of art, uh, new um, startups. Like, just do it all, God. Do it all. Would you do that through us as we just kind of re-embrace our call? In Jesus' name.